Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're recording wrestling. Um, So obviously you and I went out to celebrate season six's release and had a few beers. And we're brainstorming new format options for this new season seven. And your first impulse was to record about wrestling. So... (laughs) Remind me <laughs> why we decided to do that. I don't know. I thought it might be fun for us to like uh, tackle things that are kind of more interest pieces, using that as a lens to explore kind of our worldview ideology. So I thought wrestling would be a really fun to do because it's so... I'm fascinated by it, and, I, and I'm actually kind of new to it. I never watched wrestling growing up. I was always just like, it's fake. And I wrote it off because of that. But my sister got really into it a couple of years ago. And she started making me watch some old WrestleManias with her. And some some other matches like New Japan. There's a a whole subculture. Maybe at one point it was even a monoculture. (laughs) But there's this whole subculture of professional wrestling um and i'm talking about professional wrestling as like the entertainment complex not like the mma fighting i'm talking about like the fake wrestling so um i don't know it just really fascinates me i'm i was surprised basically uh, about how much i enjoyed it and i think because it had is so popular like i i read that wwe is the second most watched channel on youtube so the fact that it enjoys so much popularity still, even though pretty much everyone knows that it's fake, uh, I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, I myself grew up watching massive amounts of wrestling. Massive, ma- every single weekend. And my mom was the only one of her friend group to have girls, and all the rest had boys. So it was it was WWF all the time, all the time, all the time. Steady diet of WWF. So I was excited when you said this, as I recall, because I love to talk about it. Like, really, 80s, you know, <laughs> political drama of any kind is st- straight at the center of my wheelhouse. But also, I was a wrestling statistician in middle school and high school, which I don't think I disclosed when we were out drinking the other night. And I started um, being a statistician for wrestling matches when I was about 12 years old. And so I've always had a deep and abiding fascination with um, half-naked men climbing around (laughs) each other in public. And so I was obviously down. Now, that being said, I have to take a little bit of umbrage with the notion that wrestling is fake, only because I think it's best to read it as a performance art form. And I think it's much more interesting to read wrestlers as artists than as athletes. And so I'm sort of interested in exploring the dynamics of reading them that way, especially because when WWF starts peaking in the United States in the 80s, it starts crossing over with all the entertainment 
forms of the 80s, including advertisements and music videos. I'm thinking of Cyndi Lauper and how often she had wrestling stars in her videos and obviously films, right? Like, I mean, wrestling is in so many terrible movies in the 80s. So I think it's interesting to think about them as performance artists and not necessarily as athletes. What do you think about that? Maybe fake isn't the appropriate way to discuss wrestling like maybe i think it's like fictional stories that are being it's storytelling 100 percent storytelling and what's interesting about it is like it's happening in real time so time passes in the same uh way as reality and also that these fictional characters exist in our universe yes so these fictional characters have a relationship with like reality yeah and are affected by real things like their popularity which sometimes is scripted and intentional and sometimes isn't so you don't know how the audience is going to react to certain characters and the fictional universe works around how audiences react in real time um and so I think that's really interesting. And also these stories, like, because it happens that way, like, they can play out over, like, years and years and years. And decades even, <laughs> like, in some cases, like, The Undertaker, <laughs> who, like, retired from wrestling when he was, like, 55. I mean, I'm not saying I said a bunch of Undertaker gifs today before I came and recorded <laughs> this episode, but if I did. I mean, the thing about it is that I feel like, and I'm probably not the first person to say this, but... You know, wrestling strikes me as soap operas for boys and also other people. And they're a sort of telenovela, right, as a global cultural form. So there is this sense where there's episodic, dramatic encounter that is scripted. But it's almost like it, because it's in front of a live audience, there's contingency that is built into the performance art, which I really, I think, is an innovation over soap operas and telenovelas that I find super fascinating, especially as a kid growing up in the Midwest. I We were too poor for me to ever go to like a professional wrestling match, even though I begged and begged and begged. And I'm too old for us to have gotten like pay-per-view and stuff like that. But occasionally I would get to go over to somebody's house and watch it. And it just seemed like the most special thing, you know, to pay for this sportsing that's really just soap opera. <laughs> and I loved it so much because the storylines story are right in, in my... Um, I guess, purview, right? Because they're all about Cold War and they're all about Reagan and they're all about Americana and they're all about, you know, hegemony. And it's so hyper-political in a way that the telenovelas and soap operas never are, right? They are vacated of political content. And that's that was the point of them, is that they were totally bland and they focused on these hyper, you know, interpersonal encounters. Whereas with, WWF, WWE, WCW, then there's all this tableau to think about how to characterize and manage political plot lines as a wrestling ring. It's interesting that you compare wrestling to soap operas, but also complex political feelings, because I do think while there are like allegories to like politics and to feelings, sometimes uh, really negative feelings like nationalism, I think they're really accessible. You know, it's like <laughs> there's no barrier to entry. There's not a lot of complexity. It's basically like, I want this specific 
feeling to beat the shit out of like this other. I want this extremely specific xenophobia yeah. <laughs> to mobilize right. support for for Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to see how also I can't even call it a sport. <laughs> like the entertainment industry around it evolved to also match that where like they had the company, you know, the, the WWF at the time, like made the company and company wrestlers kind of like the heels, which I, are like the bad guys. So there are these like dichotomies of like, um, you know, the rebel, the disdain for authority, like the outsiders, like they are become the heroes and the company, the organization, the boss of Vince McMahon, like they are the bad guys. Yeah, I mean, I think probably it's a useful topic for somebody else's podcast to talk about the labor politics. I'd be curious to know about the union, con if they're unionized. I doubt it, you know, unlike, you know, unlike, well, they might be SAG members. Ooh, I don't think so. No? How amazing would that be, though, if Hulk Hogan was I mean, a SAG I'm sure the Rockets. <laughs> yeah, the, the Rockets. Maybe John Cena. Yeah. Interesting. I don't think so. I think there has been an undercurrent it because the fictional characters have these like um animosities that they have to um, maintain on stage and also because it's fictional characters who exist in real life um they also maintain those characters off stage so like anytime the public views the real people they need to be in character and so they also need to maintain the same animosities that they have for their other wrestlers and so I think there hasn't been, a, like, an opportunity then to collectively organize as wrestlers because you do have to maintain, you know, this competitive spirit. As part of the story building, the company, the organization, the writers, they deliberately, like, split friendships because it's dramatic. It's a soap opera. Like, two characters who were allies, like, yes. <laughs> become wrenched apart by, like, one bad match and then they go through this entire cycle of uh, antagonism and then maybe redemption in some cases. <laughs> so it's all part of it and I think like the pitting against each other has prevented wrestlers from organizing in a... So there was an attempt to unionize after WrestleMania 2 and Jesse Ventura spearheaded it but they were all just a bunch of them started doing crossover acting and so they became actors of the Screen Actors Guild. And Vince McMahon fought unionization. And so a bunch of them then started getting acting credits and joined the Screen Actors Guild as union members, which is very interesting. Um, yeah, I, the, the, the villain hero plot lines, I think, are more complicated than the lay public would give credits, uh, especially over time which I liked as a kid who was interested in politics because I was interested in the Iron Sheik and I was interested in um, a lot of the foreign policy plot lines, really, because that was my interest as a kid. I was also interested in the politics of wealth, thinking about the million dollar man and about money and how money functioned and the plot lines around greed and greediness and wealth extortion and all of that struck me as m much more interesting 
than the low-level melodramas that were happening on TV serials of any other kind when I was young. And it was particularly interesting to me, especially around Hulk Hogan as WrestleMania got so big, to think about what it meant for these dudes to sort of resuscitate this fantasy American body after the crushing defeat of Vietnam. For WWF to become so big in the 80s, that was very much about restoring a particular kind of masculinity to what America meant as a symbol, not necessarily for the world, but definitely for itself. You know, there is this mm, hyper-focus on the body in um, wrestling that I think was a good vehicle for managing a lot of the post-war feelings, the ambivalence, the uncertainty, the shame, definitely, the disappointment, the heartbreak, the grief of the 70s, the late 60s and 70s. So there is a way in which I think wrestling helped fill a void, an emotional void, especially for men, not exclusively, of course, but especially for men in, you know, the early years of the Reagan administration, the late years of the Carter administration. Yeah. I also think, though, it also reinforced dangerous ideas about the body. Yeah, and, sure. Like, I- dangerous mm-hmm. ideals about sex and gender and sexism there are storylines where women are taken kidnapped there's a lot of non-consent happening in storylines um it's fictional but you know in terms of like how you feel as an audience member um i think some of that like being read as entertainment and as i don't know i think it reinforced some uh bad ideas and about race Yeah, although I will say there's a thing about talking about wrestling right now in this exact political moment of Trumpism and, like, neo-fascism that lays bare just how much America is just, like, one giant gimmick, right? Like, the WWF worked because it was a gimmick. And that's how America works, is that it's a gimmick. And it's so gimmicky that the gimmicky guy is now the head (laughs) gimmicky guy for the whole country, you know? Because, of course, Donald Trump had plot lines in WWF, too. And so he is a cultural staple of gimmicky, vacuous, vapid, white, masculine Mm -hmm. Americana in a way that is very uncomfortable these days. (laughs) I like like that the WWE now being... Like, it's an open secret where they still maintain the illusion of reality. Like, that's still, you don't break character. Yeah. Um, But it's not a secret, right? And so I think it's the same way here. Like, we all know that money controls pretty much most of the facets of our political system. Like, open secret. (laughs) We still act like (laughs) our elections can change any of that. And that this... Uh, character Donald Trump if we read him as a character um, represented any real change and also the scapegoating like there is a, a lot of scapegoating in wrestling I think where you unload uh, your your <laughs> yes. feelings about things onto characters um, and Donald Trump scapegoating our feelings about economic precarity <laughs> onto immigrants and you know like it's the same it tracks it's the same kind of thing i think we'd be hard pressed to make the case that 80s wrestling really shaped 
you know, political political attitudes about politics. But I think it's definitely clear that they shaped attitudes about bodies and about whiteness for sure. I mean, there's so many colonial plot lines in the 80s and early 90s of WWF, WWE, WCW kinds of wrestling that it is clear to me at least that the plot lines that were being scripted were about grappling with what it meant to be um, multinational, transglobal. So there's this way in which the advertisements and the entertainment stuff with the movies and, and the music videos and all this cross-platform work was really about navigating, you know, trans-global communication in a lot of ways. It would be interesting, I suppose, to think about that, about how like viewership of WWF, WCW, WWE, WWE, works in other countries with those YouTube numbers, right? Like, who's watching that stuff now? And why? <laughs> you know, I mean, it would be a very fascinating, I think, content analysis of the comments, you know, about what people are commenting on about contemporary wrestling and what they're seeing in it that they are responding to. Because certainly nostalgia is a draw. Like, really, I could fall down a rabbit hole today and watch 900, you know, Rowdy Roddy Piper uh, clips on YouTube, and I'm not saying that I did that in preparation for this episode, but if I did, he was my favorite. I, I watched a lot of Ric Flair. <laughs> I, I had a cousin who was a herpetologist who wanted to be a herpetologist, so I always loved Jake the Snake, and I always loved Rowdy Rowdy Piper, and I loved the Bushwhackers and the Rockers, Shawn Michael and Marty Jannetty. I mean, really, I could go on about that part for days, like my like personal penchant for particular wrestlers and styles of wrestling. The Birdman, Coco Beware, mm. Junkyard Dog, mm. <laughs> J-O-I-D, so good. Anyway, uh, you know, I just, I feel like it would be interesting to see what is circulating wrestling now. It makes much more sense to me in the 80s as a particular moment of crisis in masculinity and crisis in American hegemony and financial crisis and post-colonial transition and, you know, oil crisis and hostage crisis, right? This is like a lot going on in the 80s. And it's not that there's not a lot going on now. It just seems to me like a very different time because neoliberalism has completed itself, right? So I would be curious as to how much nostalgia is produced by wrestling and i'll tell you why i was with uh, one of my best gal pals and we were in new orleans to, for a thing and we went to the roosevelt hotel to drink some sazeracs as one does in the middle of the day and it's possible we had many and it is also possible that we were there for wrestlemania it's also possible that the entire roosevelt was full of all the wrestlers who were at wrestlemania so we were wasted in the middle of the day and came out and the whole lobby is full of all the wrestlers in their little tiny you know singlets <laughs> and their all of their makeup and hair and you know nared bodies you know and we had to walk out on the red carpet to get out to the car and the whole like paparazzi line was like 45 year old white dudes and their sons like waiting to get pictures with the wrestlers that they loved as a kid and so there was this like generational whiteness that was very much about proximity to the wrestlers at wrestlemania there um and although that was the closest i ever got to wrestlemania it was still quite a thrill to be in the same hotel 
as you know some of the wrestlers I watched on TV when I was a kid too. Because matches can like take place in like really short time frames, and so many can happen like sequentially. <laughs> I mean, there are like wrestlers for everyone now. I think, and I I know there's also an expansion of other types of fighting. You know, so as like a sport, wrestling itself has evolved, um, and this particular type of professional wrestling, I said. I think is gaining more popularity elsewhere. Yes. Um, Although it always existed in yeah. lots of other places, Mexico especially. Mm-hmm. And I think there, I it's starting to open up to more like subtle storylines, like genderqueer storylines. You know, it's definitely way more progressive than it was. Well, so you know. that's a good alley-oop though, because I have to ask you about Glow, since we're also in this moment when like, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling have become a topic on Netflix. Did you watch Glow? I did, yes, yes. And what were your thoughts? <laughs> I, I was really curious about, because I know that Glow was a real thing that happened. I was curious about like how much of a realistic depiction it was. But I do like, you know, the empowering aspects and the body positivity that happened in Glow, the show. And so, you know, here's me hoping that, you know, it, it the reaction was like that uh, and that the performers really felt like that. And I also like that um, Glow as a show did have the characters grappling with their characters. Like obviously the welfare queen is extremely offensive and Uh that wrestler obviously didn't want, you know, wasn't happy with that characterization of their person. I'm curious, you know, because the viewership now would be more progressive than the viewership watching low as a real thing <laughs> so i don't know how much of that's appeal to our current sensibilities as a modern audience um and a young audience i don't know the documentary about it is pretty great and i would also say that i think i did watch glow as a kid and i would say that as far as empowering is like a nascent feminist thing Glow probably really actually was. I mean, I certainly felt that way about it. The only other girls or women who were sort of valorized that I can remember at the same time were like Nadia Comaneci, which was seemed gymnastics is, you know, is hard for me to swallow as a totally empowering sport because it just seems so rife with sexual abuse. And as I said on the mentorship episode i i'm unmentorable so i'm uncomfortable with like that close relationship with all these like man coaches and these young girls but anyway so that was not like a model of empowerment for me even though it was a model of skill and athletic talent you know what i'm saying where the gorgeous of ladies of wrestling were adult people you know and they had a much different sensibility about their bodies and space and you know the physicality of wrestling that struck me as profoundly different than like Billie Jean King in a way that I think at least for me was empowering and of course I'm sure that part of that's whiteness but um, I do think that they occupied a very unique cultural space for physical athleticism and then this kind of performance art space like if you ask me to name 
feminist performance artists from the 80s, my list would basically consist of glow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as a child, what other aspects of performance art, certainly in the Midwest as a poor mm-hmm. kid, was I exposed to? None. Yeah. You what, know? What's interesting to me about glow and also some like um, more locally produced uh, wrestling is that the wrestlers themselves get to have a say in yeah. uh, who their characters are and like how their matches go and they get to practice together they rehearse like how their matches are going to go and what would be most entertaining for their audiences um and so i like that and that's super creative i don't know how much of that uh for like the the people who are at the top of the bill in wrestlemania or for you know most of the major wrestlers in contract with wwe like do they have any say at all i think a lot of uh, wrestlers, you know, in those situations, you know, they have to follow the script and it's completely up to, and there are, there are things they can do, you know, um, there's some creativity, like the walkout, yeah. you know, the entrance, uh, is like almost as important as the match Concur. The story building. Completely agree. And so there's like some, I think, creative license about, you know, what you say and you're allowed to, they have some like platform to speak sometimes when they're walking out, when they're like prepping for the match. So in that way, like, there are things you can do, like, um, to get the audience on your side, in which case the writers would then want to write you more wins. But I don't know. I think the lack of creative control over these men's characters in women now, because I think that the WWF contracts quite a few um, women wrestlers, too. So... I don't think they have a ton of creative control, and nah. that's disappointing. So uh, in that case, you know, I like the the local. <laughs> but where do you go with that, like, as an economic you, option? I mean, you could write a counterfactual about what would have happened if Hulk Hogan hadn't bust the union organizing inside of the WWF and be like, what kind of storylines would they have produced much earlier? Or what You know, that seems like an interesting counterfactual space for exploration um, both as a labor model in the way that you were talking about in terms of collaborative creativity but also in terms of um, the labor structure itself and who are the writers and who gets contracted to write what is what does it look like what does the profit structure look like etc 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 so i don't know i i'm really glad that you chose wrestling as a topic because i i loved it so much as a kid and i feel like it has structured so much political reality actually you know or at least reflected it that it's it made a profound impact on i think my entire generation of gen xers in ways that we haven't really come to terms with 